Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 43, Capua, Hannibal's Albatross. Last time, we covered the dramatic events following Cannae. Rome, though beaten to her knees, once again rebuffed Hannibal's offers for a compromise peace and doggedly declared her intention of fighting to the bitter end. With no negotiated settlement in sight, the war in Italy now shifted to a battle for the hearts and minds of the Italian city-states. As we remember from episode 37, the majority of Rome's hegemony consisted of a number of allied Italian cities, the Socii, who had either joined Rome voluntarily or after suffering defeat in war. Within this patchwork alliance, Magna Graecia, in particular, had proven a troublesome province for nearly half a century. Consisting mainly of Greek colonies and warlike Italian tribes, Magna Graecia had only fallen under complete Roman rule relatively recently in 272 BC. It was in Magna Graecia that Pyrrhus of Epirus and his uncle, Alexander Melosus, had made their great forays into Italy at the instigation of the southern Italian cities. Despite the grueling defeat which followed in the wake of Pyrrhus's departure, several great cities still harbored ambitions to reclaim their former position as regional hegemons, and none more so than Capua. Situated on a rich agricultural plain, the former Etruscan colony of Capua was, in the words of Livy, quote, a city of great wealth and luxury, which had long prospered as the favorite of fortune. But there was general corruption there, due, more than anything else, to the license of the common people, who enjoyed unlimited freedom. Life in Capua had always been soft and luxurious. This was the result partly of defects of character in the population, though the chief reason was the superabundance in the city of all that can delight the senses, of every charm of sea and land which can tempt men to indulgence. End quote. Despite its low reputation in the eyes of Livy, many of Capua's nobles had direct familial ties to Rome due to intermarriage, and at the time of Cannae, 300 Capuan youths had been dispatched to Sicily as cavalrymen by Roman orders. The common people, however, held no love of Rome, and when Hannibal marched into Campania following his victory at Cannae, a citywide disturbance broke out. Sensing that political disaster was brewing, a savvy nobleman, Pacuvius Calavius, concocted a plan to save the Capuan Senate, as well as solidify his own power in the city. Summoning an emergency meeting of the Senate, Calavius warned the senators that, though he personally did not wish to surrender to the Carthaginians due to his own marriage ties to Rome, he feared that the common people would, quote, cut the senators' throats, and deliver the city, helpless and stripped of all control, into Hannibal's hands, End quote. Promising to avert this fate, Calavius demanded the senators put their full faith in him for deliverance. The terrified senate agreed to his terms, whereupon Calavius locked the senate chambers and went out to address the populace. Once before the people, Calavius abused the senators as a, quote, criminal and detested body of men, end quote, and said that now was the time to wreak justified vengeance upon them. However, he continued, Capua would still need governance after the senators had been executed, and rather than appoint a king, 
Calavius proposed that the people elect a new senator to replace each one they executed. This plan seemed good to the people, and thus the first prisoner was brought out for a show trial. When the man appeared before them, the crowd denounced him as a brute who should be decapitated. Calavius replied, quote, Very good. Now choose an honest and upright man to succeed him. End quote. An embarrassed silence followed until someone mentioned the name of a quote-unquote ridiculous nobody, which caused a tremendous outpouring of cursing and invectives. With no acceptable replacement available, the first man was acquitted. The same scene followed with the next prisoner brought forward, and the next, says Livy, quote, It was plain that though everyone was sick to death of the man in question, nobody could propose a satisfactory substitute. End quote. Finally, the meeting broke up, with people telling each other that, quote, after all, familiar evils are the most tolerable. End quote. With this scathing commentary on local government resolved, the relieved senators hurriedly voted to send a delegation to the remaining consul, Varro. The envoys found the dejected Varro at Canusium with a small, ill-equipped force all that remained of the once splendid army at Cannae. Despite presiding over the worst defeat in Roman history to date, Varro had not only remained in command, but had been publicly thanked by the citizens of Rome for not despairing of the Republic in her hour of need. It was a mercy, notes Livy, that would not have been extended to a Carthaginian general in Varro's place. The sight of the Romans' pathetic camp shook the Capuans' lukewarm loyalty further, and when the consul made the demand that Capua not only send Rome troops, but actually carry on the chief burden of the war in Rome's stead, the delegates balked. Varro claimed that Capua could raise 30,000 foot and 4,000 horse. Why, asked the envoys as they returned home, should they engage in a life-and-death struggle with Hannibal, when they could use those same men to reconquer the lands Rome had stolen and secure Capua as the dominant city of Italy. Scarcely had the delegation returned to Capua when they were sent out again, this time to Hannibal. The Carthaginian general leapt at the chance to bring the greatest city of southern Italy over to his side. Indeed, some ancient sources claim that Capua was behind only Rome and Carthage in power. The terms he offered were extraordinarily generous. First, no Carthaginian military or civil official should have jurisdiction over any Campanian citizen. Second, no Campanian should serve in the army against his will. Third, Campania should be governed by her own laws and rulers. Fourth, Hannibal would supply 300 Roman prisoners to ensure that the 300 Campanian nobles were returned unharmed to their native city. When news reached Capua of the city's defection, the mob immediately seized a group of Roman officials and locked them inside the city baths, where they died due to heat and suffocation. Having sealed the treaty in Roman blood, the citizens welcomed an exultant Hannibal who paraded through the city in magnificent state. The Capuans were wild with excitement to see the victor of so many famous battles and the hardened and exotic veterans who had carried their generals so far. A public holiday ensued, and Hannibal might well be forgiven for thinking that further defections would soon follow. Like most marriages of convenience, however, 
that between the Carthaginians and the Capuans began to stumble right out of the gate. Among the celebrating mass of Capuans, a few brave or foolhardy souls still spoke against siding with Hannibal, even after the new alliance was a fait accompli. Among the nobles, Decius Magius served as the chief holdout. Not only had he vigorously opposed the new treaty at every step, Magius continued to do so even after Hannibal had garrisoned the city. He reminded his fellow countrymen of Pyrrhus half a century before, who, having first been welcomed as a powerful ally, had ended as a hated tyrant of nearby Tarentum. In his fervor, Magius even tried to rouse the populace to murder the Carthaginian garrison and so redeem themselves in the eyes of Rome. When news of Magius's fiery speeches reached the Carthaginian camp, Hannibal was understandably displeased. Memories of Pyrrhus's heavy-handedness still rankled the southern Italian cities, and Hannibal, though an admirer of the great Iperate king, likely wished to distance himself from the negative connotations associated with his rule in Italy. To do so, however, he would first need to deal with the implacable Magius. His first attempt at silencing Magius consisted of demanding the Capuan appear before him at his headquarters. Magius outmaneuvered Hannibal by refusing to go and reminding the Carthaginian general that by the terms of his own treaty, he had no legal authority over a Campanian citizen. Rebuffed, Hannibal decided to bide his time before bringing Magius down. Meanwhile, the Capuans had organized a great feast in Hannibal's honor, at which Calavius and his son were present. Though Calavius himself was by now reconciled to the benefits of a Carthaginian alliance, his son was still an ardent follower of Magius. Despite the merriment of the feast and Hannibal's own friendly overtures, Calavius' son remained in a sullen mood. Upon his father retiring to the house garden, his son soon followed and whispered that he had a plan by which he could restore Capua's freedom and earn Rome's respect and friendship once again. Alarmed, Calavius asked what this plan could be, whereupon his son threw back his toga to reveal a sword by his side, saying, quote, This very night I shall ratify our pact with Rome in Hannibal's blood. You, father, I have warned of my purpose as you may not prefer to be present when the deed is done. End quote. Astonished and afraid, Calavius begged his son not to do this rash deed, arguing, quote, Do you propose single-handed to attack Hannibal? My son, remember all those freedmen and slaves, all the eyes that will be turned upon you, friendless and alone, all the drawn swords. No hand will be slow to avenge so frantic a deed and Hannibal's face, the terror of armies, the face which the Roman people shudders to look on, will you have the strength to see it and not fail? End quote. Calavius finished his argument by claiming that he would defend Hannibal's life against his son with his own body if necessary. Moved by his father's appeal, the young man at last relented, throwing his sword over the garden wall and saying, quote, The duty which I owe to my country... I will pay to you. Take back, my country, the sword I have brought into the citadel of our enemies. My father forces it from my grasp. End quote. Having narrowly escaped an assassination attempt, Hannibal addressed the Capuan Senate the next day. 
He began by thanking the Capuans for coming over to his side, and then promised that Capua would soon be the capital of all Italy once Rome was crushed, and that all the other Italian communities would be subjected to her laws. He then suddenly issued his attack on Magius, claiming that he had no friendship with this intractable senator and demanding that he be brought to judgment. Cowed by Hannibal's presence, the Senate summoned Magius, who mounted a spirited defense, claiming once again that Hannibal had no jurisdiction nor authority to judge him. Nonetheless, Hannibal had him thrown into the chains and marched to the docks to be taken to Carthage. Along the way, Magius continued to cry out that nothing in the treaty justified this violence to his person, and he warned that his fate, dragged to a certain death in broad daylight in the public forum, proved that their liberties were gone before the ink on the treaty had dried. Seeing that the crowd was beginning to get restless at Magius's words, the guards put a sack over his head until he was safely aboard ship. The story of Magius did not end with execution at Carthage, though. Instead, his ship was blown off course to Cyrene, where he found refuge in the court of the pharaoh Ptolemy Philopater. Despite dodging a would-be assassin and crushing local political opposition, Hannibal soon discovered he had little reason to celebrate. In his eagerness to secure Capua's defection, he had promised not only to protect Capua from Roman reprisals, but also ensure her dominion over fellow campanians. This forced him to give up his valuable propaganda as the liberator of all Italy from Rome's yoke, and instead made the Carthaginians the enforcers of one city's claim to preeminence. This understandably did not sit well with the other cities Hannibal wished to court. To his surprise and chagrin, with the withdrawal of Roman power, the miasma of southern Italian politics surged back with a vengeance. Fearful of a now resurgent Capua backed by her formidable foreign general, Naples, Nola, and other major cities remained loyal to Rome and closed their gates to Hannibal's envoys. The refusal of these cities to defect was all the more devastating to the Carthaginian cause since it ensured a continued lack of a major port through which reinforcements could be funneled to Hannibal. For three years he had maintained his army in Italy, recruiting local Gauls and Italians to serve as expendable troops and conserving his precious corps of veterans. Yet even Hannibal could not hold out against such odds forever. He had believed that the war could be won quickly by forcing Rome to the negotiating table after Cannae. Shockingly, Rome had refused to discuss any terms of peace, and now Hannibal was presented with the daunting task of actually waging a war of annihilation against this hydra-like city. Botched attempts to secure the recalcitrant Campanian cities by siege further emphasized Hannibal's need of external aid. His policy of goading the Italian allies into revolt had failed right at the moment when he thought it would be most successful. With no general rising in Italy, he would need support from somewhere else. Thus he dispatched his brother Mago to Carthage. Mago's arrival at the Carthaginian Senate created quite a stir. Some form of communication had to have been kept up between the capital and its semi-autonomous general over the years, but the presence of such a key member of Hannibal's entourage meant that the news and the need were great indeed. When given a chance to speak, 
Mago admirably discharged his task. Since entering Italy in 218 BC, he began, Hannibal had fought six major engagements against six consular armies. 200,000 Roman soldiers had died by his hand, including two consuls, with a further 50,000 soldiers captured. Of the six Roman commanders-in-chief, four consuls, one dictator, and one master of horse, only the dictator had come off relatively unscathed, and then only because he refused to give battle. Brutians, Lucanians, Samnites, and Campanians had all joined the Carthaginian alliance, and with their new base at Capua, Hannibal stood poised to strike into Rome's heartland. Now, at the apogee of his speech, Mago revealed a physical testimony of Hannibal's dominance. Pouring out mounds of golden rings taken from the dead and captured at Cannae onto the Senate floor, Mago told the astonished senators that these rings were worn by only the wealthiest and most prominent aristocrats in Rome. Standing next to the piles of rings, Mago demanded that the Carthaginian Senate send Hannibal more men, money, and materiel to end the war once and for all. One can imagine the resounding applause which greeted this impassioned appeal. Having been humiliated in the First Punic War and nearly destroyed in the mercenary revolt, Carthage now stood in a preeminent position over her merciless rival across the sea. Thrilled by the approaching victory, a pro-Barcid senator taunted the elderly Hanno the Great, calling on the one Roman senator in the Carthaginian council to comment on the situation. Rising to defend himself, Hanno replied that, though he had no wish to dampen the public rejoicing with pessimism, yet he would still answer the charge leveled against him. He said that he still regretted the war, and would continue to regret it until the Barcid's quote-unquote invincible general had brought it to a successful conclusion. Instead of demanding terms of peace from a defiant Rome, Hanno advised that the Carthaginians should grant terms now since they were at the height of their power. Hanno then shrewdly questioned why, if Hannibal had been so victorious and captured so much plunder, was he simultaneously asking for reinforcements and money. The old Carthaginian politician then brought his argument home by asking Mago two questions. The first was whether any member of the Latin Confederacy, those tribes bound closest to Rome by tradition and treaty, had deserted to the Carthaginian side. When Mago replied no, Hanno then followed up by asking if the Romans had indicated any willingness to speak of peace. Mago again said no. Hanno replied, quote, Very well then. In the conduct of the war, we have not advanced one inch. The situation is precisely the same as when Hannibal first crossed into Italy. To send those reinforcements and supplies to a victorious army is unnecessary and irrelevant, and far less do I think they should be sent to men who are cheating us with false and empty hopes. End quote. When Hanno sat down, few of his fellow senators had been swayed to his side, despite his strong words. On the contrary, most did not believe him due to his rabid anti-Barkid policies. His speech also smacked of tight-fistedness, and some may have remembered Hanno's responsibility for demobilizing the Carthaginian fleet prior to their fatal defeat at the Agites Islands in the First Punic War. Whatever the reasoning, his advice was dismissed, 
and the Carthaginian Senate voted to supply Hannibal reinforcements directly from Africa, and also send Mago on a recruiting drive in Spain to raise soldiers for both the Spanish and Italian fronts. Fleets were mobilized to contest Roman naval supremacy, and for a moment in the Senate chamber, it seemed as if Carthage might yet regain her crown as queen of the Mediterranean. Back on the ground in Italy, though, things were not going as well. Hannibal had failed to woo or conquer the port city of Naples after repeated attempts. His veteran army suffered a humiliating reversal at the small Campanian town of Casalinum over the fall and winter of 216 to 215 BC. Even though he possessed overwhelming numbers, Hannibal was unable to overcome the valiant garrison by assault, in the end being forced to reduce the city by starvation. Worst of all, the terms of his treaty with Capua tied his hands. Until now, his army had thrived off the initiative, blazing through the countryside of Italy with fire and sword, free from commitments and fully on the attack. Now Hannibal was forced into a defensive war. To make matters worse, his agreement precluded forcible conscription of the Capuans, meaning that he had to spend his ever-dwindling reserves of veteran Africans, Spaniards, and Celts defending Campania from Roman raids and seeking to capture increasingly hostile Italian towns. He would spend two years, 216 BC to 214 BC, marching through the Campanian countryside, besieging petty little fortresses and clashing with Roman generals who refused to risk a major battle. And all the while, no further reinforcements arrived from Carthage. Livy claims that the luxurious living of Capua softened Hannibal and his men to the point that they were useless in the following years of campaign. This is somewhat hard to believe, considering that the Carthaginian soldiers still gave good accounts of themselves in the skirmishes which followed, and the fact that the Romans feared to risk facing Hannibal in another battle. Even so, Livy's instinct to mark the defection of Capua as a turning point in the war was sound. Indeed, it would prove an event that, coming immediately off the heels of Cannae, would reverse the strategic situation in Italy overnight. Rome, under a resurgent Fabius Maximus and his allies Claudius Marcellus and Fulvius Flaccus, returned to Fabius's preferred strategy of harrying, raiding, and skirmishing warfare to slowly bleed Hannibal dry. The Roman state rallied to marshal further armies and prevent an economic collapse following the defection of the rich agricultural lands of Capua providing backing for the loans necessary to fund the armies, and even creating and minting the famed silver denarius in the middle of the war. Now that Hannibal could not leave southern Italy without risking the destruction of his new ally, Fabius's tactics could wreak their full havoc on the Carthaginian army. Time was against Hannibal, and with the failure to win over further Italian cities, he had no way of reversing the tide. In the words of the historian Gilbert Charles Picard, quote, After Cannae, the war lost the clarity and brilliance which had characterized it during the first three years. It became bogged down in a series of minor operations which are difficult to follow, but in which the Romans generally appear to have gained the upper hand. It was seen that Hannibal had lost some of his genius, or had been forsaken by fortune. End quote. With Hannibal mired in the quagmire of Italian geopolitics, 
our attention turns overseas to the war in Spain and Sicily. Next time, we will actually cover the explosive events in Spain and Sicily in the Second Punic War. Until then, take care and read more history. <laughs>